107.1 says, oh, this, by the way, is on page 602, if you have a Schofield Bible. Oh, give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endureth forever. There is another psalm that repeats that phrase, his mercy endureth forever, at the end of every verse. And it's great to just hear that ringing and echoing and echoing and ringing. His mercy endureth forever. That is a reason for worship and giving thanks to God. He is good. His mercy endureth forever. And then verse 2 is a challenge to us, God's people. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. So I want everybody to say so right now. Say so. So, yeah, well, it, it means to say more than that. Say I'm redeemed. I'm redeemed. All right, you don't have to respond now. But that's the thought here. If you are God's people, if you've trusted Christ as Savior, if you are a believer, then this is, although addressed to Israel, it's for us too. And it says, let the redeemed of the Lord talk about it, whom he has redeemed from the hand of his enemy. Now I would go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and remind you where we've been before. This time we'll look at verse 11. This is page 1233 in the Schofield Bible. And we did touch on this last week. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. I, I would say the judgment seat of Christ is a serious matter. All believers will stand there to receive what they've done, whether it was worthwhile or worthless. Then the worthless will be burned away, and all they'll have is what was worthwhile. That's all they'll have to show for it, to be rewarded of the Lord. You could think the terror of the Lord referred to the truth of the awful, awful, eternal fire hell, the lake of fire created by God for the devil and his angels. And you could refer that and say there's a reason to persuade men. There's a second way of looking at that. <coughs> the terror of the Lord is one of the reasons why the redeemed of the Lord ought to say so. But I would look back just a chapter or two to chapter 3. It's right across the page, actually. In the, you don't have to turn the page to get there in the Bible. Chapter 3 and verse uh, 12. Chapter 3 and verse 12 says, Seeing then that we have such hope, this wonderful assurance, this no-so salvation, we have a confidence that when we have believed in the Savior, His promise is we will, without fail, we will make it to heaven. There's nothing a believer can do between the time when he believes and his death. There's nothing a believer can do that would keep him from heaven. There's nothing that a believer can fail to do that would keep him from heaven. Once you have become a believer, you have the promise of God. He's going to get you. He's going to keep you. You have his eternal life. You have the Son of God. Seeing then that we have such hope, we use great plainness of speech, boldness of speech, bluntness of speech almost. The idea, you don't mince words when you're talking to somebody about the gospel. You want them not only, you want the words to be winsome, but you want them to be plain, not oh, well, I hope you make it someday kind of words. The great boldness, great plainness of speech. So there's the terror of the Lord and the wonderful hope that we have. We're the redeemed. Say so. And then we weren't in 1 Corinthians at all this lesson series, but in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul also talks about his reason why he shares the gospel. 
and he's going to move away from the thought about why they should support him to why he does what he does the way he does it. He had talked in the first part of chapter 9, this is page 1219, the first part of chapter 9, he says, you ought to support me. They that preach the gospel should live of the gospel. But in verse 15, he shifts and he says, but I have used none of these things. I'm not asking for support. Neither have I written these things that it should be done so done unto me. It would better for me to die than that any man should make my glorying void. For though I preach the gospel, I have nothing to glory of. For necessity is laid upon me. Yea, woe is unto me if I preach not the gospel. It seems like he was aware of what he would write in Second Corinthians, the, the terror of the Lord. He says in verse 17, If I do this thing, preach the gospel, willingly I have a reward. If against my will, if I don't want to do it, still a dispensation, a stewardship, a responsibility of the gospel is committed unto me. Paul says, I preach the gospel to get a reward, but if I don't want to, I still have to preach the gospel because it's committed unto me. He says, what's my reward then? Well, when I preach the gospel, I'll make it without charge that I abuse not my power in the gospel. I'm free from all men. I've made myself a slave to all that I might gain the more. And he goes into this, to Jews, I became like a Jew to gain the Jews. To them under the law, as under the law, that I might gain them that are under the law. Some people think he made a mistake when he went back to Jerusalem and took a Jewish vow well after he knew the gospel didn't involve Jewish law at all. And maybe it was a mistake, but he says, I was just trying to get the favorable attention of the Jewish people that are under the law still. To them, he says, now the Gentiles that are without law as without law. He says, not, not that I'm without law to God, but under the law to Christ. I want to gain them, the Gentiles that are without law. To the weak became I as weak. So I can gain the weak. I am made all things to all men that I might by all means save some. I'll just keep trying. If it's a fisherman, I'll try to catch some fish with him and then win him to the Lord. If it's a, a bow hunter, I'll go out there and say, show me one of those arrows. Which way does it go? <laughs> I'll become all things to all men that I might by all means save some. This I do for the gospel's sake that I might be partaker thereof with you. And he goes on with his lesson in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Now we're going to go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 now, but all of that is a kind of a stack of reasons we must, we have to, we, like Paul, have the gospel message committed unto us. At the end of the chapter, we have looked at this at the end of every lesson in this whole series on 2 Corinthians, we see here's the message of reconciliation. God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them. And he's committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now then we are ambassadors for Christ as though God did beseech you, beg you. Can you imagine God begging? God's begging you by us. We pray, we beg, we ask you in Christ's stead. Be reconciled to God. Look, God has already taken out of the way everything that stood between mankind and him. He paid for their sins. He doesn't count their sins against them anymore, but there's a word of reconciliation. The message has to be shared with all individual mankind. 
We are ambassadors for Christ as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead, be reconciled to God. And then here's the succinct form of the message. He hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. If this is you and I, we do know sin. We have my wallet representing sin. We have sin. That's the historical problem since Adam and Eve in the garden. Mankind has sin. Adam had men and girls, children of his own, that were born in his image, and his image was the image of God, tarnished and carrying the weight of sin all down through every child of Adam, all through the whole human race. We're all children of Adam. Romans chapter 5 says, for that... All have sinned. All have sinned because of Adam's sin. There we are historically with the weight of sin on us, but God broke into history. God in heaven, if this hand could represent God in heaven, no sin in heaven, God's without sin, and he made his wonderful son to come into this world, if this could be Jesus coming into the world. The one who knew no sin, he made him to be sin for us. When Jesus died on the cross, was buried and rose again, he was made sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. As Jesse so often points out, the promise of John 3.16 is God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That's when he died on the cross. That whosoever believeth in him. Notice I've got him gripping me, not me gripping him. Whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. One time, once and for all, you believe in the Savior, Jesus Christ. He has you, and he says if you're in him, you're in his Father's hand. If you're in him, you're in his hand. He and his Father are one. Nobody can pluck you out of the Father's hand. That's the gospel message. That's the way we are so secure. That's how we know we're redeemed, and so let the redeemed of the Lord say so. It's a serious thing not to believe. To fail to believe in the Savior puts you in John 3, 18. He that believeth is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Sin was the historical problem. But anymore, the sin is not the problem. The problem is not believing. The only thing we beg and plead with people to do is accept the reconciliation that God has worked to believe, because failing to believe before you die leaves you condemned. He that believeth not is condemned already, because he believeth not the record that God gave of his Son. That's enough of a message for the morning, but I'm going to go on in Second Corinthians chapter 5 now, just because I can. So we're going to look up the page just a little bit here at verse 11 again to get started. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men... That's what we do, the terror of the Lord. <coughs> it's the Greek word phobos, that word terror, like our word phobia. It means fear. It does mean fear or alarm or fright, but it also has a shade of meaning called reverence. Children fear their parents. Why? Because they're bigger. They're giants compared to the little child, right? Children have an appropriate fear of their parents, not a cowering in the corner because daddy's going to beat them, but daddy's big and mama's big and I'm little, and that's the idea that is brought out so many times in the Old Testament where it refers to the fear 
of the Lord. Reverence. The fear of the Lord, on the notes it says, the fear of the Lord is well understood in the Old Testament, acknowledging that the Lord God is awesome, fearsome, but the concept is like that of children with their father. By the way, a Toyota is not awesome. A Toyota is a good car, but it's not awesome. I remember the string of commercials they ran back a couple decades ago, and I don't like the abuse of the word awesome. There is one that is awesome, and it's not a Japanese car designer. (laughs) Anyway, I just like to stay away from using words that apply to God for anything else. Going on in the notes, it says, but so also, I think, is the idea that we who know the Lord know also the dread fate of the lost. This idea that if they don't believe, they're condemned. Hell is real. In order to believe and be saved, they have to hear the gospel, to be persuaded of the gospel, so we persuade men. Persuade is the, use, the word used in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11. Persuade. Now, we know from Romans 1.16 that it is the message that is the power of God unto salvation. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. But Paul doesn't say just throw the stuff against the wall and hope some of it sticks. Here he says persuade men. Answer their questions. Answer their objections. Speak in a winning way. Speak the truth in love. I mentioned sometimes before, not in this series, but some decades ago, I taught a science in the Bible class here in the evening school, and I had a new member in my class that wasn't a church person, and he was lost, and he asked questions, and we answered questions all night long, sharing with him the gospel out of the lesson that I had for science in the Bible, answering everything about why you should believe in Jesus as Savior, not trying to persuade him of the Bible, trying to persuade him to believe in Jesus. He left lost. He came back the next Tuesday night. I hadn't noticed this on Sunday, but he came to church Sunday morning. The next Tuesday night, he came in all aglow, and he said, Bob, you, told, you answered every one of my questions last week about why I should believe that I didn't do it. But Dr. Hank Lindstrom told me that if I would believe in the Savior, I'd become a child in the family of God. I'd have God as my father and all the believers as my brothers and sisters. And that's what I wanted. And I trusted Christ as my Savior Sunday morning. And and I was so happy. You know, you don't get mad when somebody trusts the Lord after you've plowed the ground a little bit. You get happy. We persuade men. We do the best we can to answer what they have objections to, to give them reasons for believing. We lay out the truth in front of them and hope that they will accept the promise of God and believe in the Savior. For our sake we persuade men because we get rewarded for what we do. For their sake we persuade men because they go to hell if they don't be persuaded. Here it is used just after the reference to the judgment seat of Christ where one might receive bad. So that idea is here. I want to look at some other, the places where the seed of this idea, the the fear of the Lord is in the Old Testament. So we're going to go to page 307, 2 Chronicles chapter 19, verses 6 and 7, and just go through in order the Old Testament where it uses this wonderful phrase, the fear of the Lord, the fear of Jehovah. You'll see most of these places, the 
name of the Lord is spelled in the King James Version with all capital letters, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. In verse 6 of chapter 19, we have, He said to the judges, Take heed what you do, for you judge not for man, but for the Lord who is with you in the judgment. Wherefore now let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Take heed and do it, for there is no iniquity with the Lord our God, nor respect of persons, nor taking of gifts. The judges were admonished to do what they did in the fear of the Lord because he sees what they do and he's involved with what they do. The fear of the Lord. Let the fear of the Lord be upon you. We'll go on now to page 587 to Job chapter 28. 587, the very end of Job chapter 28. In the book of Job, you always kind of need to look and see who's talking, each chapter by chapter. So at the beginning of chapter 28, at least the heading says it's Job continuing his talk. So this is not God speaking, this is not one of Job's friends speaking, this is Job speaking. And it is just his wisdom, but let's see, it's pretty wise here. To the man, he saith, behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. That's an interesting state. That's not Jehovah, that's Adonai, that's the fear of the, the master, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. To depart from evil is understanding. That's an unusual use of this phrase without the name of Jehovah in it. Capital O, cap, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D would be Jehovah. Also in Job, but back at the beginning of Job, on page 569 and then on page 570, we see in verse 8, it says, Jehovah, the Lord said unto Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job, that there is none like him in the earth, a perfect and an upright man, one that feareth God and eschews evil? He hates, he can't stand evil. There he says he fears God. God says it, and he doesn't use his name, he uses the term God. In chapter 2, just go one little bit over, at the beginning of chapter 2, similar conversation, verse 3 Again, God says, the Lord says in the middle of the verse, one that fears God and eschews evil. So there, the fear is said to be the fear of God. We're going to go on to page 607, Psalm 19. Psalm 19, verse 9. And it says in Psalm 19, verse 9, just in the beginning of the verse, it says, the fear of the Lord, Jehovah, is clean, enduring forever. That's a good thing. You get the fear of the Lord in you, it's something you can have all of your life and on into eternity. It's a good attitude to keep. It's clean and enduring forever. If we turn some pages over to Psalm 34, and I don't have the page number here, you'll just have to figure it out. Psalm 34, in verse 11... I do have it. It's page 614. I'm sorry. I did write the page number down. I just didn't give myself a bookmark. Starting in verse 11 here. Come, you children, hearken unto me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. The psalmist in this song is going to teach the fear of the Lord. What man is he that desires love and loveth many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil, your lips from speaking guile. The fear of the Lord, that's how you do it. Keep your mouth shut. (laughs) 
keep your mouth shut at least from wrong. Don't speak evil. Don't speak guile. Do you think James was aware of chapter 34 of the Psalms? The tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. Here's the fear of the Lord. Stop your bad mouth. Page 655, we have Psalm 111. There's a lot of Psalms. Psalm 111, verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding have all they that do His commandments. His praise endureth forever. So if you want wisdom, you start with the fear of the Lord. And you'll have a good understanding if you don't just learn the fear of the Lord, but you do His commandments. And praising God is something that has lasting results. His praise endureth forever. We need to go on now to Proverbs chapter 1, Proverbs chapter 1, and verse 7. This is page 672, and we're going to be page by page moving through Proverbs for a while. That's not the right one. That's uh, 5, not 6. Okay. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Back in the psalm, it said the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Much the same, but not identical. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. The Bible's pretty plain spoken about somebody that's foolish. The fear of the Lord is the way to get started. Don't despise wisdom. Don't despise instruction. Just down the page at verse 29 in Proverbs chapter 1, you have some bad folks. We have to start in verse 20. Wisdom is crying outside. Wisdom crieth without. She utters her voice in the streets. She's calling. He says, she says in verse 22, wisdom says, How long, you simple ones, will you love simplicity? The scorners delight in scorning. The fools hate knowledge. Turn you at my reproof. Behold, I will pour out my spirit unto you. I'll make known my words unto you. I called. You refused. I stretched out my hand, no man regarded, but you've set at naught all my counsel and would none of my reproof. I also will laugh at your calamity. Really? Wisdom says that. I will mock when your fear cometh. When your fear cometh as desolation and your destruction cometh as a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come upon you, then shall they call upon me, but I will not answer. They shall seek me early, but they shall not find me. 4, verse 29, for that they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. They would none of my counsel. They despised all my reproof. Therefore shall they eat the fruit of their own way and be filled with their own devices. Would it be better not to be in that group that turns away from the fear of the Lord? In the next chapter of Proverbs, in Proverbs chapter 2, Verse 5, we have, well, we're going to start earlier than verse 5 again. Verse 1, if you receive my words and hide my commandments with thee, so you incline thy ear, when you have to, you put your cup your ear with your hand, apply thine heart to understanding. If you cry after knowledge and lift up thy voice for understanding, if you seek her as silver and search for her as hid treasures, I mean, you go all out for wisdom. Then shall you understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. 
For the Lord gives wisdom. Out of his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. He layeth up sound wisdom for the righteous. He is a buckler, that's a shield, to them that walk uprightly. That's Proverbs chapter 2. Proverbs chapter 8, we'll skip on down. <coughs> Excuse me. Verse 13, and we always want to start a little sooner. Wisdom, verse 11, is better than rubies. All things that may be desired are not to be compared with wisdom. The, song, the proverb says, I, wisdom, dwell with prudence and find out knowledge of witty inventions. The fear of the Lord, here it is, is to hate evil. Pride and arrogancy and the evil way and the froward mouth do I hate. Not the forward mouth, the froward mouth. That's kind of from or to and fro, just not, not going toward the goal but away from it. The evil way and the froward mouth do I hate. Hate evil, hate pride and arrogancy. In Proverbs 9, the very next chapter, we find reference to the fear of the Lord in verse 10. Verse 9 says, Give instruction to a wise man, he will be yet wiser. Teach a just man, and he will increase in learning. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the holy is understanding. By me thy days shall be multiplied, and the years of thy life shall be increased. If thou be wise, thou shalt be wise for thyself. If thou scornest, you'll bear it alone. On to chapter 14. Chapter 14, verse 26. The Proverbs have a lot of information about the fear of the Lord. In the fear of the Lord is strong confidence. His children shall have a place of refuge. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life to depart from the snares of evil. So afraid of snares. Well, fear of the Lord. He'll keep you from them. In chapter 15... Verse 16 first, chapter 15, I like verse 13. A merry heart maketh a cheerful countenance, by sorrow of heart the spirit is broken. The heart of him that has understanding seeks knowledge, the mouth of fools feeds on foolishness. All the days of the afflicted are evil, but he that is of a merry heart hath a continual feast. Better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and trouble therewith. Better is a dinner of herbs where love is than a stalled ox and hatred therewith. The seasoning of the company with whom you eat makes a difference in the flavor of the food. We go to verse 33. The fear of the Lord is the instruction of wisdom. And before honor, there's a big parade. At, no, there's humility. Before honor is humility. In chapter 16, doesn't this just get old? No, I don't think it gets old. Verse 6, by mercy and truth, iniquity is purged. You want to get iniquity out of your life? Get mercy and get truth in. By the fear of the Lord, men depart from evil. I'm so stuck on doing wrong, I don't know what to do. Fear the Lord. Fear the Lord. You know, in, the, in Psalm 14, and I think one other psalm, it starts off by saying, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. 
And sometimes we say, see, the Bible's against atheism. That's not about atheism. That's about God's people looking around and saying, I can do whatever I want to do because nobody's going to see it, pretending that there is no God. When God's people pretend there is no God, they're being a fool. The mercy By the fear of the Lord, men depart from evil. Be aware of the presence of the Almighty. My, fa- my favorite verse, I think, one of my high favorite verses in Proverbs is 19, verse 23. Proverbs 19, verse 23. It says, The fear of the Lord tendeth to life. He that hath it shall, here's my favorite phrase, abide satisfied. He shall not be visited with evil. And I like to say there are many things in life that give you a thrill. When you go over the crest of a roller coaster, it's fun. It's scary fun, but it's fun. And then you go to the bottom and it starts creeping back up again. I mean, it's temporary. There's a lot of things that are thrilling, but satisfaction that abides can't be found in the things of this world. This is a promise, a principle of truth in the Proverbs that you can hang your hat on. You keep the fear of the Lord in your life. You live in the fear of the Lord and you'll abide satisfied. It's satisfaction, and it's abiding satisfaction. And it's a guard against the visitation of evil. I like Proverbs 19.23. We'll go a few pages over to the right and go to chapter 22. I went one too many. Chapter 22, verse 4. By humility and the fear of the Lord, our riches and honor and life. Oh, I wish I had a little more spending money. Oh, I wish people thought a little better of me. I wish I had a little more honor. I really admire those people that live to be 85 or 90, 95 years old and share the gospel all their life. Wasn't, wasn't that wonderful when that man lived so long and kept on faithful to the gospel all of his life? Yes, it was. How do you get there? Humility and the fear of the Lord. By humility and the fear of the Lord are riches and honor in life. Some people get riches without the fear of the Lord. It's foolish. Some people raise themselves up and pretend they have honor, but they don't have the honor that comes from God only. By humility and the fear of the Lord, riches and honor and life. In the next chapter, chapter 23, we have in verse 17... The last one we'll look at in the Proverbs today. Let not thine heart envy sinners. Be thou in the fear of the Lord all the day long. That sounds like a psalm that I know that says, I couldn't understand why the wicked prospered until I came into the house of the Lord and I saw their end. Don't envy sinners. You just stick with the fear of the Lord all the day long. Now, there's a book in the Bible after Proverbs that we tend to avoid too much (laughs) because it's the wisdom of man under the sun, Ecclesiastes. But it ends well, and it ends with a summation in chapter 12. This is page 704. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verses 13 and 14, the last two verses, this wise man says, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. What's the end? What do we do here? 
Fear God and keep his commandments. This is the whole duty of man. For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. It almost sounds like Paul was reading this when the Spirit inspired him to write 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 2 Corinthians chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, where he talks about the judgment seat of Christ. The conclusion of the whole matter of man's life is fear God. Fear God. This is the whole duty of man. Everything you do, good or evil, you're going to stand before God and you're going to get it back. Now, after Ecclesiastes, we get into the prophets and we're going to go to Isaiah chapter 11. This is page 723 if you're following along. The first four verses of Isaiah chapter 11 are prophetic of the Messiah. There shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse. Uh, not Pastor Martinez, but a rod out of the stem of Jesse, the father of David. A rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. Isaiah wrote some several hundred years after David was king. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The Spirit of Jehovah shall rest upon him. And then the Spirit is described in these seven ways. The Spirit of Jehovah, the Spirit of Wisdom, the Spirit of Understanding, the Spirit of Counsel, the Spirit of Might, the Spirit of Knowledge, the Spirit of the Fear of the Lord. There the phrase, the fear of the Lord, is inserted into the descriptions of the Spirit of God that will rest on the Messiah when he comes. The fear of the Lord was a part of what made the Messiah the Messiah. And verse 3 says, it'll make him of quick, of living understanding in the fear of the Lord. He'll not judge after the sight of his eyes, neither reprove after the hearing of his ears. But with righteousness shall he judge the poor and reprove with iniquity, with, excuse me, with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips shall he slay the wicked. It drifts on beyond his first coming to when he sets up as king and rebukes iniquity. And as Daniel says, he'll break the kingdoms of this earth with a rod of iron. A rod of iron out of his mouth. And out of his mouth, it's his word that he uses, the breath of his lips, the word of the Messiah. The king is coming, and he is a mighty king, and he's bathed in the fear of the Lord, the spirit of the fear of the Lord. And we go on to Isaiah chapter 33. It's page 1161. Isaiah 33, in verse 5 and 6. The Lord... Jehovah is exalted, for he dwelleth on high. He has filled Zion with judgment and righteousness. And wisdom and knowledge shall be the stability of thy times and strength of salvation. The fear of the Lord is his treasure. I think, again, looking into the Messiah and his kingdom. There's one place in the New Testament where I think the same idea of the fear of the Lord is used just as, as a general reference, and it's a, a kind of a summation chapter in the book of Acts. In chapter 9, things are in turmoil at the beginning, but by the end of the chapter, things have settled into a, a, a workable system. The church is prospering, and after Paul, Saul becomes the apostle, and he preaches boldly in Damascus, and he 
goes down to Jerusalem and he's disputing and they were going to kill him so they send him out to Tarsus just to keep him alive. They sent Saul from Jerusalem to Tarsus and look at verse 31. Verse 31, this is page uh, 1161 if you're still hunting Acts 9. Then had the churches rest throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria. So far they haven't gone to the uttermost parts of the earth, but Judea and Galilee and Samaria, like Jesus said, you'll be witnesses unto me in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria, and still coming, the uttermost parts of the earth. So what did the churches have? They had rest. They were edified, which doesn't just mean they were made to feel good. We sometimes talk about edification. Well, that song is really edifying. It just lifted my spirit. Now, edification is like building a building to build an edifice. Edifice is a building. Edification is building up a building. And there's two ways to do that. You add more material. You lay another block in the wall. Or you put buttresses up to keep the walls from falling to the outside. You strengthen the building that's already there. Both of those are edification of a building. When the churches are edified, people are being added to the churches the members of the churches, the stones of the building, and they're being strengthened as they are taught and learn and use the word of God and obey his commandments in their life. The churches had rest, and they were edified, and they weren't sitting. <laughs> they were walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Ghost and were multiplied. Walking in the fear of the Lord. I think when Luke, I think, wrote this, he had that phrase from the Old Testament in mind and said that's the way they were. They had tremendous respect for the God of the Bible and the Word of God. Now we go back to chapter 5 of 2 Corinthians now. Just a, a few minutes remain for us to go on to the, the remaining couple verses here. Verses 12 and 13 was as far as we'll go today, I think. And, and he's, he says, we commend not ourselves again unto you. This is back page 1233 in the beginning of the lesson here. We commend not ourselves again unto you, but give, a, give you occasion to glory on our behalf, that you may have somewhat to answer them which glory in appearance and not in heart. For whether we be beside ourselves, it's to God, or whether we be sober, it is for your cause. Understand, Paul's not in Corinth He's been in Corinth. He's written a letter to Corinth before which he had to give very specific rebukes to different groups in Corinth. The rebuke about the schisms and the parties. I'm Peter, I'm Paul, I'm Apollos. Rebukes to the, the, sin, the sexual sin that was being openly practiced. He was rebuking people. He stepped on toes. Some of the people didn't like that. And they were bad-mouthing Paul. And Paul says here in verse 12, we're giving you, Corinthians, to whom we've written, we give you occasion to glory on our behalf. We're giving you something to answer them, which are bad-mouthing me, which glory in appearance and not in heart. He says, some of them say I'm crazy. Verse 13, whether we be beside ourselves. That's an old-fashioned expression for saying he's out of his head. He's beside himself, you know. There's Paul, and there's another guy, and there he's a schismatic. He, he schismatic. He's a psychotic. He says, "If I'm beside myself, it's for God. 
If I'm sober-minded, it's for your cause. We're not trying to build ourselves up. We're giving you something to help you answer the people that are bad-mouthing me. And then he, he gets back into the flow of his message. He says, the love of Christ constrains us. The love of Christ constrains us. There's the other reason again of why we have to share the gospel. Dr. Seymour used to tell a story, Dick Seymour used to tell a story about hearing a wonderful message on Monday night about sharing the gospel and soul winning and being so fired up that he wanted to get out and witness to the next person he saw. And he'd get up the next morning to go to work and he didn't want to get up, guard the sleep out of his head and get dressed and go out the door and get on a bus and there's a drunk next to him on the bus that reeks and looks like he's going to throw up on him. And he says, my, my love for the lost just went out the window. And then he says, I read this verse and it doesn't say my warmed over love constrains me. It says the love of Christ constrains me. We do not motivate ourselves to witness because we love lost people. We motivate ourselves to witness because Christ loves lost people. He loved me. I'm as lost, I was as lost as you can get. This verse says the capstone reason why we are forced, constrains us, why we must share the gospel is the love of Christ. And then he makes a logical flow here. We'll just touch it briefly and then do it again next week. If one died for all, then everybody was dead. Jesus took my death. And God looks at us and he, that have believed in Jesus says, y'all dead. And that he died for all, they which live, you're dead, but you're still kicking around there. They which live should not, should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. I've got the keys to the car. I've got the steering wheel and the pedals and the shift lever, but I don't deserve any of it. When I get in my life and I go, I should do it. I should live. I should turn the wheel and push the levers the way Christ wants them pushed. Should not live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. We have to finish up here. I'd love to finish again repeating this thing that we did so many times. Here's the essence of the gospel. God was in Christ, the Im incarnation. God became a man, broke into history. And in Christ, he reconciled the world unto himself. He took what was between man and God and took it out of the way. And he doesn't charge us with our trespasses anymore. He's committed the believers the word of reconciliation. We're the ones that have to tell the story. We are ambassadors for Christ. We Ask lost people, in the stead of Christ, be reconciled to God. That's how he wants us to drive the car. Pray the lost in his stead to believe in him. He made him, him who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might be made the very righteousness of God in him. When you hear that truth of the gospel, Christ died for my sins, he was buried, he rose again, it makes sense that you should be persuaded. Believe in Jesus. He did that for you. To reject that is foolishness. To reject that
is to leave yourself condemned because you have not believed. In the name of the only begotten Son of God, believe in Jesus. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, as we close this portion of our service this morning, we pray that all listeners would be thinking about the truth of the gospel. Some who've already believed would be thinking, I deserve, Jesus deserves to drive my car. I need to open my mouth in the fear of the Lord, telling others, it, the love of Christ constrains me. He loves them. I've got the mouth. He deserves it. Let me use it for you. And for those perhaps listening who have not heard the Savior and believed on him, Father, may they this morning be persuaded to put their faith and trust in Jesus alone as their only hope for heaven, to believe in him who did die for their sins and rose again. Now bless the rest of the service time we have together this morning. Bless the musicians, bless the speaker. Everything that we do, Father, we ask that you take all the glory and all the praise for it and use it to lead others to trust in Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen. God bless.